Hello, welcome to another session of PhDivas. This is Liz. And this is Zanyo. And we have a very special episode for you. This is our second live show that we actually did as a guest lecture for a class at Cornell, Philosophy 1900, A Life Worth Living, that asks students to um, contemplate what does make uh, a life worth living beyond just like the grind of being a college student. And mm -hmm. it brings in uh, faculty, usually, or other experts from all over the U.S. Um, to talk about their areas of study. And we, the PhDivas, were presenting on the trap of overachievement. So we hope you enjoy. As always, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PhDivas Podcast and like and subscribe, rate, review on iTunes and um, SoundCloud. So we hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back from spring break. Nice to see your smiling faces. Missed you last week. Next week, April 13th, Professor Verity Platt will be here. She's a professor of classics and history of art. And she's going to talk about, uh, I think her title is something like, it's in terms of a question, are classical statues naked or nude? And why <laughs> we should care? So it's Beta Anzatz's first brush with soft porn. <laughs> we don't know that. We gotta bring it, Liz. We gotta bring it. Unless tonight. <laughs> the first brush. Uh, so you don't want to miss that next week. Uh, April 13th, um, there will be video. Recording. <laughs> well, we are. We'll be actually. closing the door promptly at 7 15. Zulu PD out. Uh, no, none of that is true. Uh, but tonight, very special guests. We're delighted to welcome back to Beta House Liz Wayne. Liz Wayne was a GRF here in Beta House, graduate resident fellow for how many years? Two? Two. Two years. She took her PhD in biomedical engineering last fall, last spring. September 30th. Last September 30th. So she left us last spring, um, and she's now on a postdoc in North Carolina. And she's joined tonight by current GRF, Zai Niao. They together constitute the PH Divas, and they have been podcasting under that uh, title for about a year, and they're going to talk about their podcast and talk about other stuff, and I think we're actually going to be on the podcast. Mm -hmm. It is very exciting. Mm -hmm. Be on your best behavior. And without further ado, Liz and Zion. Yeah, we're mic'd up right now. We'll be uploading this episode later in case, for some reason, you really want to re relive this moment. <laughs> and you guys already know this, but for people who might listen, there's, there's no porn. We're sorry. There's <laughs> <laughs> just two women talking about uh, our minds and our feelings. It's girl on girl talking. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know how to follow that. So Sorry. yes. Um, but we first wanted to well first thank you. This is so awesome. I've been going to Beta Onsats since I was a GRF, but actually even before that, when my advisor was a house fellow. So I for a long, long time, I've always enjoyed coming here and sitting in this very intimate um, atmosphere. And I'm so happy I get to come back and still be a part of the family, because it was, I think of you guys as, and the community. 
And also, uh, we were being divas before, trying to think about how we wanted to arrange the chairs uh, and making sure everything was right. Um, so we're glad that that. Yeah, we had a lot of green room specifications, you know, yeah. a lot of demands that had to be yeah. met. I mean, we had to be divas somehow, mm -hmm. now that we have our PhDs. Um, so why don't we start and tell you how we started the podcast. Um, do you guys like podcasting? Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. What's your second favorite podcast? Because your first is. <laughs> Moms, the Moth. Okay. How to do everything. How to do everything. I have 38 selection coverage. Huh. Car talk. Oh, okay. Car talk. So we started our podcast last year um, with some help from friends, and we'll mention those people. But uh, do you want to start with how this app? This really was like your you started this. Yeah. So it's just it sort of came out of this interdisciplinary group that I was actually reading group I was doing um, actually about. I called Asian America Across Time and Space, and we brought together a whole bunch of people from different disciplines talking about Asian American subjects. And of course, like we weren't just talking about academic stuff, but we also thought, of course, there's a show that just premiered last year that you probably heard of, Fresh Off the Boat, uh, based off of Eddie Huang's memoir. And of course, like it's been really important because, in case you don't already know, it's only the second TV show to uh, represent Asian Americans since Margaret Cho's disastrous All-American Girl in the 90s. I liked and, it. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh off the boat or all American? Margaret Cho. Never yeah, mind. well, it's because there's a yeah, because yeah, there's a lot of problems with the production of it. Like they made her like be more Asian, like telling her to put chopstick in her hair and stuff like that, okay, which I'm Asian people kidding. don't actually do. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it, it, okay. It's still important in many ways, but nonetheless, like we decided to have this whole conversation about it. And one of our friends um, actually had a Cornell radio show called um, Crazy Nation, so Crazy Asian Nation, and we were talking about it. And so a big topic for, for us about um, Fresh of the Boat, the, even though it's really important uh, in terms of Asian American representation, so much of the show is also about the fact that Eddie Huang's fictionalized self, based off of himself, um, is really in love with 90s hip hop. And there's this way that he's really like trying to seek a type of authenticity um, by turning basically to um, hip hop and to African American popular culture. But at the same time in the show, there's sort of this absence of major black characters. And so there's sort of this, um, it also sort of sets up this ongoing dynamic of well, that has been a problem in, in American history about the way that like Asian Americans and African Americans are often being represented as being separate or intentional with one another. And so we're having this conversation, but then like Liz was also like listening in on our radio show I and she's actually, lab, yeah. In between experiments, so I'm in my lab coat and there's a mouse under anesthesia. That's not, it's relevant. In, <laughs> it's relevant in the sense that I probably should have been paying attention to that, but I was the poor mouse. on my phone. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd already done that part. Um, and so like, okay, I've got a few minutes. I'm like, oh, Zai, oh, she's doing stuff. And I was like, hey, you can mention this. Oh, you should mention this. So I'm tweeting her. And then actually it's funny because I could hear her phone on the radio as I was messaging her because somebody doesn't know what silence means. Hey. <laughs> and, um, and so after that, a friend of ours, Dexter Thomas, who actually helped us produce this in the beginning, um, said, hey, Zion, you should have a podcast. And then somehow they said, oh, Liz, you you, Zion, you should do it with someone else. And then mm. you decide to do it with me. Yeah. And then it also made perfect sense because um, maybe I shouldn't, Erica. But what? Like what? if I no, why? Come on. <laughs> so as a DRF, you have to do activities, right? And so sometimes when I don't do activities, I'll say I had conversation with a student. And it some of some people have been victims of this. Very, so yeah, it was very engaging. You know, we get to talk about different things. Or like, oh my god, I can't believe you didn't know it. Oh my, okay. So I do that, and like, but it ends up being this great dialogue. So. 
Um, the first topic we had was fresh off the boat. Now, obviously, we don't try to battle, like, Asian and black relations every day just because we're Asian. You're Asian. (laughs) (laughs) The lines are blurring. What's happening right now? Uh, Like, we didn't decide to join forces and then fight, like, the Asian-black divide that day, but we did decide that maybe our conversations were worth sharing with other people, and maybe people would like to hear what we had to say, and we found that's moderately true. Um, Moderately true. Well, I'm trying to... Yeah. How do I measure this? Um... So we, we do we do well, we do pretty well. Um, you can, you know, follow us, subscribe. Anyway, that's not the point. So we wanted to tell you guys about our podcast, and that's how we do this, and we have conversations, and actually it's been a way to keep our friendship going strong Yeah. Um, since we're no longer in a same space Two-body problem. Our two-body problem. Yeah, which is, well, yeah, never mind. Uh, I was also um, going to say, like, yeah. for us, it's like, what I think is so wonderful about PhD Divas as a space is that of course we're communicating a lot of different types of difference like she is in biomedical engineering I'm in English literature um, I'm from Canada well, this is a very important thing about me I'm from Toronto Every time. <laughs> she's from Canada I'm from Mississippi um, she's always asking me what book I've read and I look at her like really <laughs> like I, I don't read books like that I don't do that and so it's been interesting to also talk about how do I do research versus how does she do research because they're different the way we think about significance or how we actually look at data has been really interesting. Yeah, and so some of our topics have been around this, like what is considered evidence in biomedical engineering versus English. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, Liz brought me to her lab to see like some of the crazy things that go on there with lasers and mice and mice brains. And I brought her to like an archival trip that I went to Philly for. Yeah. It was all really cool. I'm laughing because I had an, an, an event happen when I took them there, and they always make fun of me for it. You can ask me later about what actually happened in the lab, but... Uh, it has to be off podcast. There's, there's <laughs> screaming involved. Um, so what we're going to do right now, or I guess beyond the actual topics that we discuss, one of the things that we found is that it's been really helpful for people to hear what we have to say because it makes us more relatable, because it somehow takes this idea of what we do um, and makes it look like either they're doing it themselves or they can do it. And um, being able to describe how this works, and also it's our soul, Zion and my, it's our way of trying to tackle academia together mm-hmm. instead of doing it alone. Um, and so what we're going to do for the rest of this is actually kind of talk about a topic as if we were having a podcast session, and that is the trap of overachievement, which I think you guys are all aware of as Cornell students, maybe. Yeah, you may have felt those pressures at some point. Oh, I want to be a little bit silly now, but I feel like in a very appropriate musical cue would be, Which I want to be the very best, like no one ever was. Did, you're drawing a blank? Oh my god, Liz. Who is this? Who recognizes that? Hands up. Yes! Thank you. Thank you. It's the Pokemon theme song. Scott didn't know that. Phil? Uh, Phil knew. Phil knew. Even I knew that. Sorry. I love you, Greg. You can talk. Okay. So, Pokemon. Everyone feels like a Pokemon occasionally. No, you're a Pokemon trainer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's like a fucking bad trainer. Um, <laughs> because we have this drive to be the very best like no one ever was. And like often that's the mentality that has brought us to a place like Cornell. Yeah. 
And obviously, as people who are obtaining or have obtained our PhD from an Ivy League institution, there's very much the way that uh, that type of mindset has been really drilled into us yeah. from a very young age. Yeah, and I think we're coming at this from, from lots of perspectives, actually. So I actually also did my undergrad at an Ivy. Um, I won't name it because I'm at Cornell, so why bother? But um, <laughs> the point is, is that I remember as an undergrad, there was this mentality that if I didn't have more than one major, if I had only one major, I was doing something wrong. Right, like you have to have two or three majors, or no matter what you did, there was always that kid who like did a startup business and then had three majors and then like went somewhere else and did something else and and it's kind of and you think how do they do that with all that time, um, and in a way it does beat down on like you thinking about what you actually need to achieve, like how well am I doing, because someone's always talking about how well they're doing and it's hard to measure your own independent success, and then. Um, because of our jobs itself, we've also realized working with students that there's this pressure, always this pressure to be doing well, and if not well, just better than everyone else somehow. So, yeah. Do you what? Maybe is there a particular moment that stands out for you, Liz, like in your childhood, where you realize that My you're? I know you're that you were addicted to this type of overachievement. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna sound bad. I'm sorry. But um, maybe like a lot of you, high school wasn't hard. Um, she was prom queen. I'm just gonna put that out there. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to be prom queen. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, that was an awkward moment in my life. Um, it felt like never mind. Um, what would I say? Um, if we're talking about my childhood, I would definitely say that um, this is probably where the intersection of, like, I think we, our families may all have expectations of us. Um, so, like, for me, that was somehow I got packaging the smart one. Like, I was the one who was like, oh, she's smart, she's going to be a doctor, she's going to make it. And there was this point where I realized that having people tell me that my whole life meant I had to make it, and it meant I had to be, I was making myself try to be perfect all the time, Right. Um, you know, my family would say things like, oh, Liz will never get pregnant in high school because, oh, she's not interested in boys. I'm like, wait a minute, like, of course I'm interested. You know, I'm a teenager. But uh, people just have this impression that I could never mess up or I was never interested or I was never, I was never going to do something bad. And I definitely think I did get to this point where I liked school and I liked doing what I was doing. But if I didn't do exactly, like, the best, I felt like something was missing. Mm -hmm. um, like, to the point where I couldn't actually even enjoy being successful, which I was. Um, and I had to spend a lot of time trying to undo that perfection. First of all, even realizing I was trying to be perfect, I didn't realize that. Or when people say that you're just so perfect, sometimes sarcastically. But yeah, I would say that started in high school, even with my family, mm -hmm. kind of pegging me as being perfect and feeling like I had to be. And then not being able to define success because of that, right? Like, I was kind of selling this idea of what people want me to be. And it actually took me a, a while to realize that they're two different things. Um, I'm haranguing here, but the last thing I would say is... Uh, Do you want to say what the two different things are? Yeah. Okay, that's, what that's I fine. Say. You, you complete my sentences. You complete me. Um, but what I was thinking of was... Um, what I also realized was... So as a black person... And I studied physics. I love physics. I wanted to be a physicist when I was 11. That was the kind of kid I was. 
And um, sometimes when you say you're interested in physics and you're a minority or like anything, like, oh, well, we need to make sure that you make it and like get through the pipeline. And that, which is all to say there's a point where I realized I wasn't sure if I was doing something because I was expected to do it or if I actually <coughs> genuinely wanted to do it. And um, you may also relate to this. You're successful enough that you know how to work even when you're not motivated. Um, so you can keep doing something even if you lost the motivation to do it a long time ago because you just know how to make that engine crank. And there was a point where I had to actually try to think, is this what I want to do? Because I am in a place where I have all these opportunities and I actually may have the choice of doing something I love as well as something I'm good at. And mine is doing this because I'm good at it. Have I actually tried to figure out what I want to do? Or am I just falling into this kind of trap? So Zion, what about you? You made me go all the way back to being a kid. Well, I can go back to childhood as well. So for example, like I'm an extremely competitive person. Like, really? You know, believe it or not, <laughs> if you don't know me, but like, I just remember like doing things like playing like games like memory as a kid, like, you know, where you have all those tiles flipped over and I'd always win against adults. Mm -hmm. But then the thing is like, it was very hard for me to take not being able to win at something as silly as snakes and ladders. Like I remember like just getting really, really upset at that because I, I had to win so badly. Um, and for me, that sort of, like, it leaked into all different types of my life, not just, like, playing games, but, like, say, like, playing, like, like, every year, like, every grade, when you get those, like, little awards handed out, I was like, okay, well, this year I managed to get this one, this one, this one. Next year I have to be able to replicate that and get even more. And it became this sort of addiction that I think that um, props sounds familiar to a, a lot of you guys, that, like, when you do well, of course your family is like, I'm so proud of you for getting these grades. But then sometimes it becomes this feedback loop of, like, wow, this is like what my worth is. That sort of as Liz said, like if you're known as being the smart one, then that's what you're expected to be. And that's what you're being, you're holding yourself up to be. And I sort of see this, this type of addiction that I was trying to chase um, and perhaps, and still is trying to chase like this idea of perfection or like trying to do just as well next time without ever actually being able to enjoy it. And for me, for example, like um, nowadays, one time way I try to control my competitiveness because academia is always competitive is that I do not play competitive games with people. Olivia's nodding She's right now. Because, right, I know, but I, I just can't. Like, I can only play co-op games because it's just it's just way too frustrating yep. for me to, like, you know, die while playing some FPS or something like that. Yeah. Like, we have to do it together because then it takes some of the anxiety off for me. It would probably ruin relationships. I could probably, it would, uh, yeah, I once tried to play Monopoly with my ex and it didn't go well. Don't play Monopoly at all. That's, that's different. What's... Nobody, <laughs> that's, nobody uh, can play Monopoly. Like, that's not... Like, it's sort of like one of those things, like, when you lose and, like, you know, you're supposed to, like, be nice about it, but, like, I don't want to be nice about it. Or, like, or when I win, I don't want to be nice about it either. I don't want to be like, yes, in your face! <laughs> So like control, for me, like identifying that and like trying to see like, okay, if I'm going to be this type of a competitive, overly ambitious person, can I at least control it to other parts of my life so it doesn't affect personal relationships? And so that's why even though like my partner loves all different types of video games and board games, I only play the stuff that's co-op because I know that that's what I can handle. And for that's me, what's, yeah, I know. And also, well, but speaking of like non-real life, for me, a fictional character that has been really in important in embodying this for me. Harry Potter. No, I have, okay. <laughs> I, okay, I have a controversial stance towards Harry Potter, which is that I've, I avoid it, but uh, that's, a, that's a different, another story whatsoever. Do people know the show Avatar The Last Airbender? Okay, no, enough nods, Greg, you should get on this. But anyways, I identify very much with the character Azula. Yeah. So if, for those of you who know, who know that- That's like, not exactly a good thing. She's a bad guy. Yeah, <laughs> she's a villain. But to me, like she really example, like we have things in common, like 
because she's from the Fire Nation, she wears black and red. I'm related to black and red too. Um, I like fire. But anyways, but like she's like almost obsessed with perfection and like holding herself up to the standard, and then it translates into a type of ambition and cruelty towards <laughs> others. And I feel like that's very easily a route that I can go down if I become so fixated on myself and building myself up as a sort of way. And like, what happens at the end? And since Greg hasn't watched it yet, I can't say what hap like ends up happening. It's but over. like, it's it's okay. Like, anyways, it's, it's very important. <laughs> okay. So what about this? So obviously, being an overachiever has its advantages. It means yeah. you finish projects on time. It means you, you want to be the best, which means you put out your best work. But what's the disadvantage of overachievement? At what point does being an overachiever stop failing you, start to fail you? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess as I was sort of expressing is that, again, it was very easy for me to then like try and extend this idea of competition to every area of my life. Mm -hmm. um, starting to trying to quantify everything, like having to compare myself constantly, playing this sort of game of like comparing where I am in my life to other people. And it becomes really overwhelming because you can't keep it up on all fronts. It becomes really anxiety producing. Mm -hmm. I think especially as like, I'm sure that we all have the experience <laughs> of like, you're the, you know, a big fish in a small pond in elementary school, then you go to high school and then you like eat all the other little fish and then you get to Cornell and then like, oh, you're all these people used to be big fish. And now we're all sharks, you know, like just to keep pushing this metaphor. Yeah, but, this is like a... I know that's you, but it's just really interesting to hear you say it out loud. Um, and I'm trying to think about the ways in which I'm competitive because I think, um, I don't know, maybe I was always taught to be very, like, I, I guess I do, you can't tell, I don't have an accent, but I am Southern. So there's this Southern politeness that I have with everything. So usually I don't, if I have something bad to say, I keep it in my head. But in my head, I'm like, this is stupid, you're wrong, like, or I'm, like, I'm right. <laughs> I'm right, I'm, a, I'm like successful, or I don't know, but I don't say that out loud. But that doesn't mean that I, I don't get competitive about things. For me, I get more competitive with myself, so it's most detrimental, I think, to myself. Um, so, one again, not being able to acknowledge when I actually did something that was good, um, feeling like that wasn't good enough, even though it was pretty damn good. Um, and probably I should back up and say, um, when I tell myself or when I say out loud I did something good, that's not because I woke up going, I'm great, I'm amazing. I'm more so saying it because it is like my natural instinct to not <coughs> acknowledge when I do something good. So I fake it till I make it until one day I'm actually like, that was really good. So I just say it because why not say something was good? If it's actually good, it'll sink in eventually. And I think what's also difficult is like with the path that we've chosen in academia, mm. it sometimes feels like we are our CVs. Like, I think already now you probably feel like, you know, for example, some people feel like their Facebook feeds are sort of them. That's why people always have to, like, you know, show their best face. But for ac in academia, it also becomes this whole thing, like, how many lines you have on your CV. And it's this way that I think that um, your identity becomes so defined by accomplishment that there seems to be like, very little room for failure and really little room to be human sometimes. And that's what I think can be often really difficult. Mm. Um, so in undergrad, I... I, I wasn't the best, but I wasn't the worst. Um, and I think now that I've finished my PhD journey, I like to talk about it a little more. But grades used to be a big deal. Grades are scary. Grades mean everything. And I always find it interesting because sometimes people come to me and they'll say, well, Liz, you have like two degrees. Like, you're Ivy all the way, right? You've got a physics degree. You've got a BME. You must have really, really smart. And um, I think before, I guess I felt in this way, and like, I can't, I can't not 
tell people that. Like, they have to believe that, I guess. But, you know, my GPA was like a 3.0 when I graduated. It was hard. And I don't even know what my PhD degree GPA was. Um, it was all about perseverance. It was all about thinking, do I want this at the end? And then, like, can I network? Can I do conferences? Can I work with people to figure it out? And I think that struggling in undergrad, having things not be easy, really made me um, think about the overachievement thing, especially because I thought I was doing bad. I thought I was failing, like literally failing. Like I shouldn't be here. Maybe I should, well, no, not at the school. I believe I deserve, I thought I deserved to be there, but should I change majors or something? And I think we've all, I talk to people who think about like, should I change my major? Cause I got a bad grade in a class. Um, and sometimes if it's easy, that feels like it's a straight shot, do something that's easy. But again, you may not actually enjoy that. But if it's not easy, then what do you do with that answer? Um, and I guess I kind of, what I'm saying is failing mm-hmm. made me have to evaluate a lot of things or not being like what I thought undergrad was going to be for me made me have to define my path in a different way, um, which made me have to think about things and really think about what I wanted and talk with people and actually admit that I had issues or admit that I had things that were wrong with me, with mm-hmm. like studying and, um, and other things. And I have to say that was like the most helpful thing I could have ever done because once I started talking to people, I learned the biggest secret of all, which is everybody is struggling in mm-hmm. um, different ways. I mean, I just, I still remember the one time I talked with one of my friends and I said, you know, I had to go to, I, I went to CAPS because I was struggling. And she said she wished she had the courage to go, but she'll never go. But she deals with this stuff, too. Or you talk to someone and tell them, like, oh, well, my, I didn't get a good grade. And you're like, well, you're not the only one getting good grades, but no one talks about it. So you think everyone's doing well. And um, there are things that we can see, but there are mm-hmm. also things that we can't see. And I think that everybody, this whole room is filled with statistics, numbers, uh, stories that nobody can see, but that are there. And at some point, I just started going around just assuming something was going on with them. And that they were dealing with something in the same way that I was doing it. So I have no real reason to be jealous of someone else because you're probably messed up too. <laughs> and that's a beautiful thing. We can all go through this journey together. Um, I think that was failing, having to redefine what success meant for me personally, rather than try- defining myself as this is what I thought success was going to be. I thought success was going to be getting straight A's and kind of being like a physics virtuoso. I thought. Physics, I thought it would mean, um, I was naive in college because I was from Mississippi and I assumed that, uh, well, first of all, I live in a town of 5,000 people. It's even, it's way smaller than, than Ithaca. Um, I, yeah, it's really small, really, really small. And my goal was to get out into a city. I wanted to be in a city. I, I don't know, I just, the city, you know, say it, it sounds like magical or something. So I go to Philly with 5 million people. And it was scary. And <laughs> Hurricane Katrina was my first year in college, so I lost contact with everybody. And it was just a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But I thought it was going to be easy. Or I thought, not that it was going to be easy, but you know, like, you know how in movies they go, like, the first time it doesn't work, the second time it doesn't work, but the third time. The third time, mm-hmm. like, the Rocky music starts playing, right? <laughs> and it works. And, like, in real life, it's like, no, the, the fifth, the third time I went to sleep at, like, <laughs> 
2, 3 a.m. and I woke up and I started binge eating or something. And the Lord had, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And so I would encourage you to think about what success means for you because that's going to be the most successful person you are. Because if I had gone back and said, um, oh, well, I wasn't successful in undergrad, so I shouldn't even think about doing a PhD. I shouldn't even apply. I wouldn't have a PhD right now. Right? I mean, I think if I didn't tell you my numbers, you would think I was really successful. And that's because I internally have worked on those things. Mm -hmm. I was also going to say that... And you're from Canada. Uh, yeah, I'm from Canada. That's, again, <laughs> really, in case you forgot. But um, there's also something really pernicious, I think, about... Uh, over pernicious, I'm sorry. Okay, bad. Or something else. <laughs> that's, that's so hard. hard. I'm sorry. I can't help it, okay? <laughs> I'm an English PhD. <laughs> Anyways, there's something that's really bad about the sort of fixation over achievement because we're always, if you end up always chasing grades as this, as this measure of self-worth, that I'm sure that if there's any seniors in the house, you end up having this anxiety about like how, what does success look like afterwards? And it's very easy to be like the only type of measure that matters afterwards is money or like, you know, certain goal, relationship, personal milestones. You start trying to think like, oh, if there's this, some sort of um, patina of objectivity that surrounds whatever's on my report card. How can I replicate success in my personal life? And I think that's when it becomes really, really insidious because then you try to start start quantifying so many parts of your life and your experience and measuring it against other people's. Um, and I think that to go to take a broader route, there's also there's a way that overachievement, especially within academia ends up reifying a lot of ideas about meritocracy that then translate to how we look at society at large yeah. and say looking at the way that people seem to succeed or fail or not succeed. Okay. Okay. So of course like um I say that of course academia seems to be a place of meritocracy. Like you think that the people who make it are like really brilliant, et cetera, et cetera. Like they, they deserve success. But then the corollary of meritocracy is this blaming of anyone who can't make it. But then what the, the sort of broader vision is, uh, perhaps you guys have already studied in other class, is, is that so much about meritocracy, what we've been talking about in our individual experiences, translates to like another version of, say, like the American dream. This idea of this individualistic, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you pull yourself up by your late night study sessions and get those A's that translate into getting... how much sleep you haven't gotten. Yeah, because you're like showing what a good worker you are. <laughs> this is like the kind of success that you're going to have. And then that sort of means like, how do you view everyone else? Is everyone else a competitor? Are the people that don't make it according to those uh, criteria success then like failures? And do you then say that they deserve what they got? And like, you could see that this has much more far reaching effects. That's not just about how we think of ourselves individually, it becomes a whole cultural, whole social ideology around who is worthy and who isn't worthy. And I think that another thing that Liz has started to get to is that, um, our success isn't always just about us as individuals, but also has a particular uh, cultural context. For example, of course, um, uh, since I'm from Canada, but nonetheless, like, you know, I'm a Chinese Canadian or like, you know, uh, put in this broad frame of Asian North Americans. And we're, t we're seen, for example, as the model minority. And so there's this way that um, my success isn't always seen as individual success, but then is also a part of this particular sociocultural phenomenon and stereotype, um, which, 
again, sort of like feeds into this sort of cultural perception, which in itself, for those of you who may have studied it, is its own sort of problem because it ends up obscuring a lot of problems, say, within the Asian American community, um, as well as the way that uh, Asian Americans have historically been pitted against other ethnic groups, uh, other races, particularly African Americans and the type of success that, that they've had. And so this way that our success that we're talking to them, of course, are not just about us succeeding as individuals, but also sometimes end up reflecting on us culturally or like, um, we're, it's not just about us. We're a part of greater historical formations. Like obviously um, whatever success I've had is also not just dependent on my hard work, but say the fact that because of immigration acts in the 1960s, my family was were able to come to Canada and have say good enough jobs and they were able to get give me access to resources that allowed me to succeed. Uh, they're able to get me into the right type of high schools. Um, they're able to get me into this other systems like this. It's not just about me somehow like emerging out of the wasteland of Toronto as a successful person, but like, wasteland. but like, you know what I mean? Like, no, it's not a wasteland. Like, we have Drake after all, but, <laughs> but uh, um, when we talk about this type of academic success, it often obscures like that we are part of these greater contexts. It's not just about us as individuals. It's about histories. It's about even like, immigration or legislative policies. It's about even like how, how your area that, that your family came to ended up being zoned and what type of schools ended up being there. These things that are out of, like you only have so much control over. It's sort of a separate issue, but that very idea used to really bring me a lot of stress mm-hmm. because um, there's nothing like um, walking into a room, um, particularly like older black people, you see this a lot. Actually, they will still do this. And they kind of give you that, like when I, I couldn't do this, and you can, um, and it's like people look at you and go like, no, you. It's not you just going to school. Like you represent the entire black like community, like the entire American community. And if you fail, basically they're gonna think that black people can't do it at all. Um, like they, I think people give you that stress. Like older people give you that stress. And God forbid, especially as a scientist, I know this. Like a STEM person, what'll happen is. Um, if you change your mind and say, well, I don't want to be a doctor, I don't want to be, I don't want to do this, they'll get mad at you and say that you're like, how dare you abandon the goal? How dare you not do this? Like, you worked so hard to get you here, um, so why are you abandoning it? And I had to let that go. I had to just engage myself, which is kind of mm-hmm. anti to the argument, but I guess it also describes how communities can be different. And I'm pretty sure that for you, you can think about ways you have to disengage from your community, there are those expectations. I find this is also true for um, lots of first-generation students who, um, if they're the first person to go to college, quite often there can be this issue where you're here, and particularly if you're a place like Cornell, um, just any place that gives you privilege. Like, the day I got privilege was the day I got accepted into Penn. And I, didn't I thought know. you said you weren't going to mention this other place. <laughs> anyway, keep going. The day I got to a way better Ivy than Cornell. Oh! <laughs> it's really not. The point is that you, I got privileged that day and I didn't know it. But my family and everyone started to treat me differently because of it. And it can be hard to have those kind of conversations across generational boundaries. Um, particularly, you know, if you start making more money or you start doing different things. Or I would be at events with ice sculptures. I'm like, ice sculptures. And then I call home and my family's having issues with their car and they can't go to work. Or, you know, it's not can't, they can't pay their bills. Like, the lights are going to go off. And so, like, there's this huge divide of my family's struggling. And then, and I'm doing this and, like, having fun. 
even though I'm upset mm-hmm. with the struggle. So, and it's very interesting. Um, but I definitely think that maybe at the end, the identity that you have with yourself and the relationship you have with your community. So I kind of had a negative interaction with my community, and I had to, I had to calm down. I had to realize that they love me, my family at least, and they're gonna be proud of me no matter what I do. So I just kind of I needed to stop imagining what they were seeing when they looked at me, and start being more comfortable in my own skin and being who I was, or not trying to code switch back. Like I'm never I'm. I am me. I've always been weird. They knew this. <laughs> so, so um, I don't know. I, I wish I could tell you that I figured that out immediately in college, but I, but I would say that if you do the work now, it gets better. Um, it's all about, like, fulfilling and figuring out who, you, like, what you want and how your goals can align with the goals that you want and also with your community because I, I think one point that I would make about community is that it's been helpful to feel like, I'm doing this with along people and not against people. So I never imagined that I'm com- I'm competing with the person sitting next to me. I imagine that the competition is the actual assignment. So let's say there's a grant application. Um, I need to make sure that what I write directly reflects the assignment. That's who I'm competing against. Um, if someone else does well, great. But they they I I don't know. Like taking that off of the person next to me kind of helped me focus on what's really important and being able to, I'm rambling. No, I think, I think um. what you're getting to as important is that what's important for us is like about community and realizing that we have to build community for ourselves and that success is not a zero sum game and that we succeed when we succeed together, which is again, sort of brings us back to why we do the podcast together, right? Yeah, you do it again. So random aside, but um, we have, we have lots of dynamics that happen, but one of the things that always makes me laugh is I'll spend like two solid minutes trying to explain something, and then Zai will literally produce like one sentence. <laughs> like one well-crafted sentence. And I'm like, that's what I was, I was wondering, that's what I was trying to say. Um, which I guess if I had an English PhD, maybe. <laughs> anyway, it's great, it's a great interaction. But doing it together, I'm trying to realize people aren't my enemies, and um, I don't know, being happier, because I think you're going to do your best work where you feel fulfilled. And I think the trick is trying to find out where that is for you. What do you enjoy doing? What are you also good at? How does that work? How do you balance like relationships with your family, with other community, things that affect your decisions? Because I think there's never going to be a world where we don't have any pressures. I, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I've learned that. I'm learning, I'm learning that um, going to new places doesn't mean that you don't have pressure. It means you have different pressures. But, uh, but I do believe that if you can let go of this idea of this is what I need to be, then it'll help you be what you want to be. And also, I think um, perhaps another aspect of that is um, if we sort of shift away the orientation on us as individuals but towards communities that it becomes ultimately about trying to create the type of culture that we want to live in or the type of society that we want to live in. That sometimes if we fall too deeply into this trap of overachievement and this trap of thinking about meritocracy, we tend to like perhaps want continue to um, reinforce the current system as, a tri- as opposed to trying to push for it to be better. 
and rather than saying like how can i succeed in the system how we should then ask like how can more of us succeed how can we make the success available to to more people and how can we make this change it to be better and more humane not that we'll be any less rigorous as say as academics but how can we be more compassionate and like for example as you're saying like talking to your friend about caps like i i really try to talk to a lot of junior people in my program and the f first thing i always say is, try to say is like sometimes it's not writer's block sometimes it's depression and this happens a lot in graduate school and sometimes yeah letting them know straight off the bat like all the pragmatic things like okay Here's where Caps is. Like another thing I, I immediately told the people who are coming in were like was like, there's no fluoride in the water in Ithaca. So that's why, and we don't have a dental insurance. So this is also something to bear in mind um, in case you're wondering why suddenly you have a lot more cavities than you have, you've had before. Yes, fluoride toothpaste, fluoride mouthwash. I think it's a very pragmatic tip. <laughs> I think that was a public service announcement. Yeah, it's, it's important. It sounds silly, but that could really, it's, it's exp Two stuff you is expensive. Beta house, <laughs> yeah. You know, work though. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, should we open it to questions now? Yeah, we should actually, because it's what like eight o'clock. <laughs> yeah, shit, crap. We are, some of us are also going to to the <laughs> Welcome to Night Vale show, which is supposed to be starting now. In but three minutes. yes, but questions. And also, you'll end up in the podcast. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yes? Uh, well, firstly, I would just like to say that I'm also from Mississippi. And it's, <gasps> it's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Um, and, and, Wait, and, where? I'm sorry. Uh, Starkville. I went to MSMS. Oh, yeah, I did too. Really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. That's so cool. She was wasn't you? Weren't you a convention speaker, convocation speaker, or something for it I recently? I did an um, opening convocation. Ah, uh, no, I didn't. That's what similarly stuck. But I prepared. I I I literally um, showed Professor Yarbrough, Mr. Yarbrough, as a um, Professor Flitwick from Hogwarts. I put a picture. I put their two pictures up. Did you do tales? Oh, no, I did, ta I did everything. Yeah. I did Tails. Yeah. Oh. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tails is when you dress up like someone from the 1800s and you go to the cemetery and pretend to be them and people yeah. come to watch you, which is really fun for what? people. What? <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. I, I, I need Tails. I thought it was like Tails Sonic. from the Crypt. <laughs> I'm thinking of the video I'm game sorry, character. Yeah, it is funny, but like, oh, the so black people are like, we're... <laughs> <laughs> um, 17 is like, I was a decoration day lady. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so like this is not really a question. Like, thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the things that's interesting to me uh, was that like, I felt like my experience... Um, with overachievement is like very different mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I guess somewhat less existent. I, I felt like like for me coming from Mississippi, it's just sort of like no one no one really expected me to come to an Ivy League school. I didn't expect to come to an Ivy League school. Like my mom was really proud of me for getting, you know, A's in high school. And so being here, it's just kind of like, I can do whatever. And everyone's like, you know, super proud of me. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess like that, is interesting and and and, and completely unrelated. Uh, 
But, like, I'm kind of curious about, like, um, to what degree do you think uh, that sort of, like, not that I have experience with this at all, but the, the pressure faced by minorities to, like, represent, do you think, to what degree do you think that is just something that, like, you just have to handle uh, versus, like, a problem that, like, causes harm? That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I well, I guess I'm happy that you mentioned the idea of causing it, that something can help cause harm, because I think that it could cause harm in terms yeah, of like it become a type of become physical. Yeah, or to become a type of exceptionalism. Like, for example, the way that the model minority operates for Asian North Americans is that it then perhaps devalues them in other ways. Like, there becomes. <sighs> Like, I feel like perhaps, uh, well, Emily, for example, here is from our Asian American Studies class, but like, uh, so this is something we've talked about quite a bit, but there's this way that the success perhaps comes at a cost of, again, de uh, devaluing others in, in relation, uh, or I think that, but at the same time, I think that what's interesting about the burden of representation is that we all agree that representation is important of minorities in general. But again, sometimes it's like, sometimes it's a heavy burden, but sometimes it's a burden that we use for our advantage because we know that a type of power that we can wield because we represent those people. But it's sort of difficult because even if we, it's a, if we sort of think of this sort of figurative burden, it's one that we always have to carry, but sometimes we can make it work for us, but sometimes it works against us. Well, I would use your example of being a Mississippian um, because people have perceptions of Mississippi and in regards to exceptionalism, Sometimes people will make you be, well, you must be the smart one, right? Like, yeah, or like, why can't everyone be like that? Accent, right, and so when you, when you don't have an accent, you come from Mississippi, people kind of think you're smarter. And so what about the people that I know who are smart but just have accents? What about the people who had sicknesses and they just didn't, well, they weren't able to perform or do other things? I think, um, I think there is this performance. I'd be curious to hear if, there's another fragment that's a Mississippian that feels like I have to represent Mississippi and go like, we have running water. Um, <laughs> I, I know white people. We talk. I know like we. I know this and like, oh come on, like that was in the six. Well, not that was in the sixties, but um, people bring up everything as if their racism racism is only in Mississippi. And yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you looked outside? Have yes. you, like, where do people live? Tell me where people live. Tell me if they actually talk to each other. Yeah. Um, and so. Um, I do think it's difficult. I think learning how to separate them and go, I am me, who is a part of this community, who's also part of this community, and that's community, and this community kind of spreads the load for me mentally and allows me to say, like, I'm a part of these, but I am not these. <laughs> I am black, but by no means I represent all blackness. And I think if you, that's the funny thing, if you put me in a room full of black people, I will be the so not black person in that room. I mean, it's really funny because... Maybe the black people in the room can relate to this, <laughs> but um, like there's a way in which when I'm not when I'm the only black person, it's like I am black by existence. Like I am, no, I'm not passing anywhere. I'm black, but if you put me like my family will call me white sometimes, um, they, like because I I talk like a white person. Don't be offended by that. I don't understand it either. But, um, but I, just like there are different spheres in which. 
I used to actually be really concerned about not feeling black enough around black people, and then I realized, like, there's nothing, I can't make my voice deeper, I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't speak in slang, I really can't, it's really bad, and I can, <laughs> I can't, I just, I've tried, but, you know, like, the N-word is off limits for me, even though I am black, I know that's controversial, but, um, but I, I just be myself, great, I am me. And I'm also a Mississippian who's also now Cornell alum, who's also a Penn alum, who's also, you know, like likes reading, likes books, and like, whatever. So I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> well, I think it's still made for a good story. <laughs> but it also made me think that um, perhaps dovetailing to this is also this question of respectability, oh, yeah. um, right? That if we, because of our success, then we become a particular type of respectable face, uh, face that perhaps other people will expect others to live up to. Like, for example, again, for me as a, an Asian person doing a PhD in English literature, like often, of course, what Asian people hear is like, where are you really from? Or do you, sp you know, sp you're here, speak English. And it's like, actually, well, English is the only language I speak and I speak it far better than you. I have a PhD in it, asshole. Um, <laughs> but so, so that is a sort of like a mic drop thing. And like, that's a type of power. Sorry, I just have this visual view. Ch I challenge you to a word challenge. <laughs> a word off. <laughs> But then the problem is like uh, for a long time I did sort of internalize that as like um, and I realized what I was thinking about myself is like oh I'm one of the good Asians the ones that know English really well and then what does it say like for people that I know my family members friends who do have accents or that um, for who for whom English is not a first language and that uh, I was trying to perhaps separate myself and show myself as being like better in some ways but actually no they're um, they're just as intelligent just as valid. Um, and perhaps the way of me internalizing Englishness as being a, a, such a huge part of my identity, say, goes back to the entire history of, say, colonialism in China, um, and Hong Kong, and so forth. Like this, um, and also being from Canada is again part of the Commonwealth, part of the former British Empire. That again, I'm a part of this product of something that's like centuries old. That, and it just so happens that like privilege has shaken out in such a way that I've managed to benefit from it. But I'm very much a product of these circumstances, as much as someone who's tried hard on my own. I know that we are talking about minority experiences and women, and maybe things that women may face. I don't think we actually hit that point. About the woman part? But not Where the are we woman part. Women? Um, there were times actually growing up that I forgot I was a woman because I was dealing with like racism, um, which is like an interesting topic. But what I would challenge you, or what I would argue, is that, again, like everyone has something. There's some community that you have. There may be things you're, perf you're all performing in some way. Um, and... I think in that sense, the, the thing we're talking about would still apply to you in that way. I mean, I w I'd be curious to see if there are ways in which you perform Mississippi-ness or not <laughs> perform or hide versus they uh, do. Yeah, I, I, uh... Nobody wants to say they're from Mississippi. No, see, that's... A, Oprah I, doesn't, that's not, Morgan Freeman doesn't. That's definitely not my experience. Like, I, I like to, uh... But not, not as representative being... Not the flag, right? The, <laughs> just just the, the symbolic... Sorry. I just snorted. I guess I... Uh, I, I just like to, like... Just show that I'm, like... That I come from this, like, radically different background. Because it is... I do... 
I do think it's like radically. So you still try to show that you're different from what people think you're supposed to be. No, like radically different from, from, well, I mean, what do you mean by supposed to be? Supposed to be as a Cornell student or as a Mississippian? As a Mississippian? No, I, as a Cornell student, maybe I don't know. Is this a psych? Is this like a? I, I think it's just like, I, I think it. I think it's like like okay, for me being Mississippi is is in the same category as like my name is Agrippa and I have lesbian parents. All mm. of those are interesting things that are great mm. conversation starters. If someone else's name was Agrippa, <coughs> I'd be like, okay, let's talk about that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> never happens. Yeah. But it's like, so it's it's sort of a like like a here's a factoid. But but then when it's like when it actually means things to people, I also like to tap into that and say like I share this or whatever. So it's like I never feel like a I still never feel like representative, I guess. So it seems to you like a type of cultural currency almost. Um. Uh, more I don't. I, I get like. I have to think of all the implications of that terminology. Oh, okay. But. <laughs> It's just like. Are you gonna be a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Huh. Uh, she should be a psychic. <laughs> no, that's not a psychic. What? I'm just what? kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't let me talk about things I don't know about. Uh, Any other questions? I have a, I have a comment uh, about him not being represented. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I feel like that's similar to my story. Like, yeah. I, I'm Asian-American, but I didn't come from, like, wealthy parents or even educated parents. I grew up working class. And so, like, even though I ended up doing a PhD or whatever, it wasn't because, like, you know, I was always prepped for it. But then I think when a lot of people see me, they think, like, oh, he's Asian, so he's smart and good at math and things like that. I'm bad at math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? So I, always, so I always find these conversations interesting because I feel like I relate more to Liz in terms of our childhood than, like, to, like, um... To like Zion and like the way they came, because my parents came here. They don't speak a speak of English. They never went to college, so it's like a very different story. And it's hard finding yourself being represented or being understood by people. There was a hand over. Well, there? I was. I was always okay. Oh, sorry. I was always surprised by the Asian stereotype because that wasn't in my mind as yeah. growing up. And then people told me like, oh, Asian people are very successful. I was like, oh. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Did you have a um so we were talking about um this whole thing was about the trap of um overachievement, but um I was wondering like have you like how do you escape that trap when you're in an institution like Cornell where like myself, I refuse to do a all nighter. I just think like that just sounds horrible to me. So like, but then I get ridiculed. Like not ridiculed. That's a harsh word. But like, it seems like I'm not working hard enough because I'm at this institution that seemingly requires this type of action to succeed. So it seems like that you're kind of trapped in like the, the trap of overachievement. So how would you say like, how do you escape this trap while in this environment or experience you have with attempting this? I think part of it is like, because it, it is sort of this culture, yeah, of like people boasting about how long they've been studying or how much work they've been doing is that you have to sort of find allies like me finding Liz and be like, okay, maybe like the most we achieved today is that we managed to get out of bed, you know, yes. like, and sometimes it's just like about finding like-minded people and like sort of reinforcing that we can have time off. Like, like Liz and I, I think 
one reason why our friendship really works is that on the one hand, even though we're both um, really hard workers at the same time, we also know to check in with each other when the other person maybe, we, it's very easy for both of us I think to sometimes forget that we're human because we become so focused on work. But then the, but because I care about Liz, I'll be like, Liz, make sure that you're eating, make sure you're drinking enough water, <laughs> like things like that. Like it's not just about experiments all the time. Um, and like it's having, it's, <laughs> it's not embarrassing, but it's there. When I was at the end of my PhD, there were literally days where I wouldn't, I get up at six, I'm out, I'm in lab, I would do like 10, 12 hour days in lab. And there was a point where I would get up at six and look at the ceiling for a few hours and then get up and lay on the floor and then look at the ceiling. And, but I thought that was progress because it was closer to the door. <laughs> and um, and I, when I say that, I mean, that's also one thing that I think helps with the bubble, the, the trap overachievement, being able to acknowledge that I had moments where I could not function, but also be able to say, but I still have my PhD, but people still, I still got job interviews. Um, reaching out to people helps me be aware that this thing did not change my work. So like, you are more robust than um, like when you go to sleep. Also, let me just add, there's this guy in undergrad who lives across the hall from me, who, this, I don't know where you thought this story was going. <laughs> <laughs> um, never tell my parents I live in a co-ed dorm, I will say that. But, um. They listen to this podcast. They do. Um, <laughs> I think they know. Um, the point is, is that he was very good. He was very smart. He got really great grades. And. Then I, and then, he, but he would look at me and go like, Liz, what'd you do on the homework? Let's look at the homework together. And so I had to realize, like, I'm so worried about my work, but this person I think is really good also, um, who actually was really good. And um, the bigger point is that he never did all-nighters. He always went to the gym. He always ate healthy. And what I took from, and when I started to look around, the people who were like, were actually like, I knew like they were doing really well, they always took care of themselves. They always took care of their bodies. Mm -hmm. They never thought, um, I'm going to sit here for 12 straight hours and work without feeding my body, without giving glucose to my brain, which should make my brain work. I'm not going to sleep. They thought they put their whole body into the equation and they made that work. And I think that it's easy to, to forget that. Um, so one, I would encourage you to ask yourself, where's the pressure coming from? Like deconstruct the pressure. Is that from other people you see around you? Is that what your faculty, someone said? Or is that what you think? Is that actually going to be like the future of success? The other thing is I started, my way is like, um, I don't know, I put out like little feelers. I like, I'm having a bad day. I need to talk about this. Like, oh, you know what? I'm looking at the ceiling. I need to talk about this. That's probably not right. Um, and I did that many times, like many. There, I had a lot of struggles. Um, definitely had, we did not, we did a lot of help. But what I would say is, you should make a bubble for yourself, and that bubble will float to the top because it's air and it's like this <laughs> viscous solution. So you need to make your bubble. You need your team. You need people who you can trust. Not everyone you can trust, um, and that that whatever that means. But it means that I need people who are sympathetic, who understand. So that's friends, but that's also like administrators, because there's a value in that because they have more. They know about the resources at the university. They may have more time, different perspective. So people older and younger, and I made this team of people so that whenever I did get in trouble, I could um, talk to people. And again, I can stay stable because I've surrounded myself with people that I can anchor myself to. Um, 
And really, taking care of your body is the way to do school. I did not realize that in undergrad, but I will say, my first semester as a GRF, I didn't see undergrads until I saw, until I lived here in a different capacity. I lived in a house just like this in undergrad, all four years. I lived in the dorms, and seeing you guys, I'm like, what are you doing? Go to sleep. Like, I almost wish I could drug you with, like. <laughs> oh, my God, you're going to roofie all our students. <laughs> I don't even know how to get roofie. I was talking, like, melatonin or something. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's like, you guys are doing these things, and some of them are kind of cute. You know, because, like, oh, you're 20. Oh, I remember being 20, you know. But um, you got to take care of your body. That's how you take care of yourself. If you don't do all-nighters, then you don't do all-nighters. You need to ask yourself, like, are you doing well at the end of the day? Because that's what's going to matter. Or, like, also thinking about, like, I, I, I'm still working on this myself, um, but, like, it's so easy to make to-do lists that it becomes so goal-oriented, but it's also really hard to some also like give yourself the time to relax because sometimes I'll be like oh I was so lazy today but then be like oh what did you do I did all these things or I'll be like I just like sat there and did nothing and mm -hmm. people someone's like that's that's normal you realize like you, you don't have to constantly not be doing anything and so for me actually I find it's easier for me to be kinder or more compassionate to other people than I am to myself because I'm so hard on myself so for example one thing I like doing is like binge watching anime with Olivia here and so that often like becomes this way that because I'm doing it with her then it's like okay I could afford to take this time away because it's not just about doing it myself we're watching this together um, and so it becomes a, being responsible to I'm good at being responsible to others more than being responsible to myself and by like attaching myself to good friends that have perhaps better sense or a better way sense of relaxing is a way to force myself to take that time for me I really struggle with time I think some people who know me who've known me for a few like a lot of years will look at me like you're crazy. I think I've been called crazy a lot because I, oh, because I'll say something and I'll say like, oh, I'm not doing well. And I've been in lab and they'll, and they'll say like, me too, I think you'll say this like, I didn't do anything today. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and you're doing, and I'm like, oh, like I forget, I'm in my own bubble so often that I forget that what I'm doing isn't like normal sometimes. I just work and I work and I work and I work. And then when I feel tired, I don't accept it. I feel like I should never be tired. I, you like, like, of course I'm studying. That shouldn't mean I'm tired, right? I should keep working. Like, well, that sounds stupid when I say it, but when I'm going through it, absolutely. I feel like I should always be working. And I feel like when I'm not working, I'm doing something wrong. And then I got my PhD. <laughs> and then all the stress went away. Sorry, one, maybe one last question. One last question. Emily? Um, well, we've been talking a lot about overachievement and like maybe even to a degree being called an overachiever, but we never really discussed whether we see, whether we think being called an overachiever is good or bad or maybe.